Welcome to Game Night with the Saints. We're your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. We're a husband and wife who have a passion for board games, and this podcast is dedicated to sharing that passion. All right. Welcome to episode six. We're going to try something a little different tonight. Um, Rather than having a feature game, we're going to have a feature topic. So for those that aren't aware, we're going to run through our board game memories of the last couple of weeks, discuss our notable news and crowdfunding corner, and instead of having a feature game, we will have a feature topic tonight, which is, can board games be scary? All right, why don't you go ahead and uh, jump into your memory, Jess? I don't have one this week because we've been absolutely slammed with uh, various real-life things and haven't really played any games, so I'll be interested to hear what yours is. Well, it actually works out that you don't have one because I have two this oh, week. okay. Um, the first is we've mostly been playing Sleeping Gods when we found time to play because we're trying to work through the first campaign. And so my first memory is kind of a jab at myself, which I'm fine with because, you know, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. But I was complaining to Brad about the combat, getting injured, and we had just finished going through a deck and we're about to start another deck. And I said to him, hey, what's the symbol on my on my character's board? And he's like, well, you know, you get rid of that kind of card, you get an extra damage point so I literally played two decks of the game without knowing how to do more (laughs) damage so I had a good laugh at myself over that and I think that's a fun memory for me to always be a little bit humble before you complain (laughs) because you might not be playing the game right (laughs) and then my second memory is um, we bought Jaina some Haba games to play and um, I might get the name wrong animal upon animal right? Yeah, I think it's animal on animal. Okay. Um, If you're looking for it, it's on the top shelf up there. But anyway, we... Oh, no, you were right. Animal upon animal. Okay. (laughs) So anyway, we got our animal upon animal. Now I'm a stay-at-home mom. And what I don't have as a stay-at-home mom is any kind of, you know, yearly feedback. How are you doing as a mom? But we got our animal upon animal, and we were playing it the other morning and she knew every single one of the animals not just by recognition but to name them as they came up and that was a pretty proud mom moment for me that my daily lessons with her and what I've been working on with her must be working because we've been working on animals through the alphabet so she knew all the animals and that was a proud mama moment plus she loves the game nice so all right so notable news and crowdfunding corner do you have any news this week? Uh, yeah, just one piece of news. I thought we'd have more because Essence Spiel is going on or has just finished. Um, but I didn't really see anything that we didn't already know about coming out of that. So all I have is that the Heroes of Might and Magic, the board game, has been announced for 2022. And that's going to be published by Archon Studios pretty sparse on the details right now but it seems like it's going to try to capture the video game experience in board game format so you know hex-based map you begin a starting village stuff like that and i think it's really interesting how many board game video game crossovers we're seeing now uh we actually have bloodborne the board game on our shelf right now we just haven't played it yet um but that was that was our big one from last year well, yeah, and we've seen a couple um, World of Warcraft uh, IP versions yeah. of game come out, um, like Small World, and then there's a, what, a Pandemic one coming out. Yep. yep. And it's also the reverse, right? This is the week that um, Gloomhaven Digital comes off early access. So right. that's True. a board game to video game, so the reverse. Why don't you uh, go ahead and jump into your crowdfunding corner? Okay, so my crowdfunding corner this week I've actually had on my list even last episode, but I um, I didn't choose it because I obviously wanted to cover Artisans of Splendid Vale um, because it was a much shorter time for that Kickstarter, but it's Verdant from Flat Out Games. And originally I noticed it because I heard Beth Sobel was the illustrator 
who is well known for many other games like Wingspan and Calico. And when I first heard the theme, I have to confess I wasn't interested because I do not have a green thumb. Whatever the opposite <laughs> end of the color spectrum for the green thumb is, that's the thumb I have. In fact, we have no house plants. And um, so I was like, eh, not so sure I'll be interested. But then I got looking at it. And the game is about, you know, creating a cozy space I'm guessing in your home, right, for, you know, your your plants and for you to relax. And, you know, you see like in the Kickstarter, there's little animals and things you can add to your room. And let me tell you, these days, I'm all about any cozy I can carve out in my life. So then I got <laughs> interested in it. Um, so I'm getting a little carried away. Let me give you some stats. From what I can tell from the Kickstarter, it looks like it's a competitive drafting placement and spatial puzzle all rolled into one it plays for one to five players and the games take about 30 to 45 minutes so aside from the idea that it promotes cozy what I loved about it is the art it is just beautiful and you can check it out on our kickstarter page Um, it also fits that time niche like Brad says we really struggle to find time to play Our toddler, Jaina, we're seeing her bedtimes are getting a little bit later. That leaves us even less time in the evenings to play. So I like that 30 to 45 minute window it has. And the price is really, really reasonable. It's only, I think, $29 for the base buy-in. Yeah, $29 and uh, $11 shipping in the U.S. for $40 total. Yeah, and I thought, you know, that's a really amazing deal because there's a lot in the box. There's something like 124 unique cards across the different card types, and I think that's before stretch goals, so that's pretty impressive. Um, And, you know, we don't really have anything in our collection that is like this kind of cozy plant spatial puzzle theme, so I'm pretty excited for it. Yeah, you know what it reminded me of? It reminds me of Isle of Cats, um, which is a polyomino game, but has a card drafting element. Uh, But the real thing that reminded me about Isle of Cats is that it also has a family mode. Mm. So you can kind of scale up to the full game. You can start a little less complex and maybe, you know, introduce people to hobby board games with that and then scale up to the full version when you, you know, when they're more comfortable. And I always like that as an option. Well, and I always talk in about the games we either review or for our crowdfunding corner about education. This one's for my own education. So maybe by, you know, the time I played a handful of games, I will have a green thumb and no longer will have (laughs) my deadly thumb. So it is on Kickstarter and it runs through October 28th. Ends at midnight on October 28th. So a little bit of time yet if you want to check it out. It is fully funded as of a while ago, actually. So, all right, Brad, what did you pick this week? All right. I picked Tales from the Red Dragon Inn by Slugfist Games on Kickstarter right now. And it's kind of a co-op dungeon crawler set in the Red Dragon Inn universe. Uh, For those that aren't familiar, the original game was mostly a hand management game uh, with some light gambling elements, Uh, but it was kind of one of my gateway games into the hobby. Um, My actual hobby board gaming experience started with Arkham Horror 2nd Edition, but after that we did play a lot of Red Dragon Inn both as a drinking game and as a board game in college. And uh, so the Tales from the Red Dragon Inn uses a lot of the same familiar characters like Fiona and Gurky. And it looks like a nice dungeon crawler, kind of on a, a bit on the lighter side, which can be great for newer players or people that are just looking to have a laid back evening. I feel like, you know, you can only have so many complex games in your collection before you just don't start putting any of them on the table right and then what do you do um and then i think what really drew me drew me to it 
is that it looks like it uses a system where each adventure has its own map on a large sheet, which could significantly cut down on setup and teardown time. And this is an innovation we're kind of seeing a little bit more in the board game space, um, kind of pioneered, it feels like, by Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, which came with a map book, which took you know, a standard Gloomhaven scenario, which usually it takes about a half hour to set up down to about 30 seconds. And I think that's really where you want to be with uh, Dungeon Crawlers going forward if you can manage it, especially if you are trying to target newer players like Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion was. Yeah, I mean, we've played similar uh, Descent 2nd Edition, right? And uh, Journeys in... Uh, Middle Earth, and they have they have that journeys for me. The map, as you know, and I are not friends because I really <laughs> struggle with putting those pieces together. So that's uh, Tales from the Red Dragon Inn, and that's on Kickstarter through October twenty eighth. All right. All right. So why don't we go ahead and uh, go to our feature topic, which is can a board game actually scare you? When you go ahead and start off, Jess. So this is something you and I have talked about. I mean, honestly, since you first introduced me to board games, the first, I won't say two board games, obviously, I played, you know, the classic games growing up, but the hobby board game was the first game you made me jump into the same deep end with you on Arkham Horror Second Edition, right? <laughs> and um, we we kind of like turned down the lights and we put on like there actually we found like a playlist on YouTube and we put it on the TV in the background, and you know we set, we set like a mood to to play the game, but was I scared? No. Um, so over, ever since then, you know, that's just been several years ago, we have talked about this topic is can board games be scary? So I don't know that I'm sold a hundred percent one way or the other, but I can say I haven't personally been scared yet by a board game. Right. Yeah. I think that in a lot of ways, games are a little bit too deterministic especially hobby board games to really scare you because even though you might not know what's going to happen in the game, you will probably know if you're going to succeed or fail or whatever way in advance of, you know, the roll of the dice or whatever the case may be. I think board games can create a sense of stress and anxiety with what you're talking about, right? Whether you're going to fail or succeed, um, Certainly, there are app games like Descent and Journeys, and um, we'll talk about we have a we have a list to go through of our favorite um, board games this time of year for the scary theme, and obviously Mansions, right? That they have like mood music that plays with them. It's, um, Mansions of Madness. Or sorry, <laughs> I'm so sleep deprived. Mansions of Madness Second Edition, yeah, um, and the they cre- can create, like you said, you, um, you can feel like a sense of, oh my goodness, there's a, there's a, I'm thinking specifically in journeys and shadow paths, you have a map that's timed. You have every, so many yeah. turns to get to the next map or your character's going to die. And there's that sense of urgency of making sure you have the, the ability to do what you need to do and get to the next tile so you don't die. And it's not maybe fear you feel but there's definitely this heightened sense of tension while you're playing but that's not the same thing as being scared it's like it's like high anxiety of is my character going to die yeah tension for sure yeah so i've got a few games here that um we haven't played but i want to tell you the premise and you tell me if you think that you might be scared playing these games are there spiders? Because if they're spiders, the answer is yes. I don't think so. <laughs> so the first one is Nyctophobia. And this is a one versus all game where one player is a serial killer and the rest of the players are blind. They literally have to wear blackout shades so that they can't see the board and have to navigate their pieces via touch. 
And I think maybe if you put some like atmospheric music on and you give the serial killer player a soundboard or something, maybe you could get there and make that game scary. But is that the game being scary or is that like being deprived of one of your senses is inherently a little scary? Well, let's let's hold on, because I think I probably would. I mean, you're in a safe space, right? If you're playing that game, you're playing hopefully with people, you know, now if you put me in a room with a bunch of strangers and you blindfolded me and I had to play that game, I'd be terrified. (laughs) But if we're playing it with people, we know there's that sense again of tension and anticipation, but probably not legitimate fear. But it's interesting because then I, as we were talking about having this be our topic this week, I got to thinking, well, why am I so afraid of movies? Right? Like I remember and I wasn't supposed to watch scary movies as a kid, um, but I would go to my friend's house and we would watch like Friday the 13th or whatever it was, right? And then I would look behind the door for Jason every time I walked through like a room for like the next week or so. How can movies have that effect, right? Because you're clearly separated from it. You're not in this movie. Jason Voorhees isn't actually going to step out from behind my pantry door, and they, but they create that sense of fear that you carry with you. So why can't board games maybe quite get there, even with, you know, like you said, sensory deprivation? Yeah, it's a good question. So second game, the perfection game that you play as a kid. For those that aren't familiar, it's the one with the timer and you have to put the shapes into matching holes. And if you're not fast enough, the entire board upends itself and all the pieces kind of fly into your face. Uh, certainly anxiety inducing, but is that scary? I think it reminds, I think that might come closest because I actually have a note on my notes about operation, right? The game you play as a kid as well, operation, you're trying to pull it out and then you hit that little buzzer and it's like, zzz. and I remember I didn't have perfection, but my cousin had it. We played every time I went to her house when we were kids and it made me jump every time it like <laughs> popped. And I think that's probably the closest that I think I've ever personally been playing any type of game to getting scared um it feels like it's a jump scare from a scary movie right no you know like when people used to send those stupid chain emails and it's like keep scrolling and all of a sudden somebody like screams in your face like those things like it's that kind of jump scare but you're not actually scared your heart just like beats really hard and really loudly for a few moments sure and then so the last uh one I want to run by you is actually a category of games and it's hidden trader games. So these are cooperative games where players might not be on the same team and therefore can't trust each other. So that would be something like Battlestar Galactica or the recently released reskin Unfathomable. Uh, Dead of Winter is another example of this where sometimes there's a hidden trader and you don't know that until well into the game yeah i don't think the hidden trader mechanic actually would scare is scary i think it's just more of a it it raises the tension in the form of suspicion and it's not there's the stakes in the game are a lot less i guess and maybe now i'm thinking about my question about movies and maybe that's it right you watch a movie and a good movie you get very emotionally invested in the characters. So it matters what happens to them. But in a board game, I don't know for a normal, like, you know, Dead of Winter example, how emotionally I invested I am in those characters because I'm sending them out in the snow and letting them get bit by zombies regularly versus if I was watching the movie, they'd be like, don't go, stay inside, it's not <laughs> worth it. And so... That one for me is not scary. Well, and I have to wonder how much your own agency plays into whether or not something is scary, right? Because in the movie example that you just said, you have absolutely no control over what that character is going to do. They're going to do every cliched horror movie thing. You know, they're going to split the party. They're going to go into the, you know, cabin where they know the serial killer is all by themselves with no weapon, you know, whatever. Um, And you can't do anything to stop that. But in a board game, 
because you are playing the game, you're a more active participant. And I think that kind of takes the edge off a little bit because even though you can't control everything, you can still control whatever your characters are doing or your pieces are moving or whatever the case may be. Wow. And so I wanted, one of the notes that I made is fear for me has changed, I guess, a little bit, right? I don't actually get scared watching scary movies anymore as an adult. I just think they're kind of... Lies. All right. (laughs) But I just think they're kind of dumb. The things that scare me now as an adult, to be honest, I played Pandemic just the first time a short while ago, and I found that game terrifying because of like the state of the world we're living in, right? So there's aspects of games that you wouldn't think of that are scary, but are have a fear factor and stress level to them, right? Twilight struggle. When you and I play that, we're usually dancing around the nuclear like <laughs> option. Like these are the things in real life that, you know, you worry about, right? Um, you know, so there are elements of stress and anxiety that aren't necessarily just tied to your what you would consider maybe a classics horror suspense type game sure so do we want to kind of jump through our list and why we picked it for games or do you have anything else to add on the topic uh one more thing right what about real-time games oh that's just my personal anxiety (laughs) yeah right but yeah i guess that doesn't rise to the level of fear but i'm thinking about every time we play millennium blades and you get super tense when you see there's only like a minute left and you don't have your deck ready for the tournament and then you just win the game anyway but is that a fear-based response or is that just anxiety that's my um type a perfection personality needs to make sure i have the best possible tableau to beat you (laughs) all right so i think the the general consensus then is that Board games, by and large, cannot really be scary. And I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong on that. Somebody wants to uh, send us a game that they designed that they think is actually going to be scary. You know, hit us up. But so far, we haven't seen one out of the probably thousands of games at this point that we've played. All right. So we have a list of, you know, and... I don't know. I don't know if this is a shopping list for our, our viewers. We tried to pick games that were still in production um, that we play this time of year because we love the theme. Even if they don't scare us, they fit well with Halloween and the fall. So which end of the list do you want to start with? Do you want to work from like the younger, friendlier ones up or do you want to deep dive into the other end of the pool? Yeah, let's uh, begin at the beginning. Okay. And uh, so we're going to talk about the Arkham Horror Files games by Fantasy Flight first. Um, we always try to play a few of these during this time of year. And we actually did a article for our website last year on an introduction to the Arkham Files games. Uh, so if you want additional information on any of these games in text format, I think I covered three of them out of the four that we're going to talk about today and we'll uh, link that in the show notes so we didn't include i do before we jump in we didn't put arkham horror second edition in this list and the reason being even though brad and i love it and we usually play it this time of year is it's not easy to come by and or you're paying an absurd amount to try and get it off of sites like ebay so we didn't include that in our recommended list for the season yeah it's out of print Um, but we did include what's probably still one of my favorite games, um, is Eldritch Horror. And we now own all of that. Yep. Yeah. And so Eldritch Horror is, you know, an adventure game. It's cooperative. You are, you pick your, you pick your characters and Brad and I usually each play with one or no two. We each play with two. And, um... And, you know, you're trying to save the world from whatever ancient evil or old god is coming through. So what about Eldritch Horror makes it, like, seasonal for you? Well, I mean, just 
the big umbrella of the Arkham Files games is that they're based on H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, right? Um, and they've done a lot to distance themselves from that because of the obvious issues with H.P. Lovecraft as a writer being, you know, racist and xenophobic and awful, misogynistic and, you know, all sorts of negative adjectives. Um, so they've, they've tried to distance themselves from that, but they're still set in that universe. So it's all about, you know, impending doom that you really don't understand and can barely figure out how to stop. But what I really like about Aldrich Horror is the condition cards. I think that's what really sets it apart. And what these cards are is they, you know, they might be diseased or whatever, but on the, and on the front, all the disease cards say the same thing. But on the back, and the game will tell you when you're supposed to flip them over, you know, you don't know if you've got the common cold or some new alien virus that you have to deal with or whatever, right? And so every game's different, and the level to which your characters are, you know, out of their depth isn't known necessarily until enough bad things happen to you and you start flipping cards over. Yeah, I mean, for me... What's the one? It's the pact, the dark oh, pact. The dark pact yeah, yeah, the dark pact. There's so many bad things on the other side of those cards. So you want to talk about a little bit of fear? I fear those cards. I'm afraid every time I'm forced to get a dark pack or take it because it's the best option at the time for our our adventure team. Um, but it does have like that sense of like you said, dread and suspense. Because you also have the doom track and you watch as it counts down as you're trying to like, you know, solve the, solve the, what is it? The mysteries, mysteries. solve yeah. the mysteries. And, you know, you're, you're just watching the world about to come to an end with a sense of hopelessness and yes, dread. So I feel that Eldritch Horror is a really good one for, for that kind of emotion evoking this time of year. Yeah, Definitely. Um, next up in the Arkham Files games list is Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. And that's a cooperative, scenario-driven dungeon crawler that has an app assistant, um, again, by Fantasy Flight. And I think this one is great for the season because, as we were talking about earlier, it kind of sets the tone for you. It's got, it's got ambient music and you actually in a lot of cases in mansions of madness have to solve a mystery it's not just you know abstracted the game will ask you questions at various points and be like well who do you think the murderer is or you know put these clues together to figure out you know who the cult leader is so that you can go arrest them or whatever and in that way it's kind of the the most pulp noir kind of of our games for the season, but it's still very much set in the Cthulhu mythos. So you've got all the supernatural stuff in there as well. Wow. And the thing I love is if you're not moving fast enough as an investigator to crack the mystery in mansions, things start getting progressively worse when you go through the mythos phase. Yeah, Yeah. And so there's a lot of like, almost like, I don't know what the term is like, E, what's gonna happen this time to my poor character yeah yeah puts you on a puts you on a clock for sure uh so anything else you want to say about mansions no i think that's a good overview so arkham horror third edition is uh one of the more recent ones of the arkham files to our collection we've only had it a couple of years at this point but it's very similar it, to everything we've said about the other ones it's set in the you know, in the H.P. Lovecraft uh, universe, and it has that same anticipation of you're trying to figure things out, you're trying to stay away from the monsters, you're trying to survive. Uh, so it has a lot of those similar effects of the two we just talked about. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty similar. The The main differences, I guess, are the the scale, right? So... Eldritch Horror is a worldwide scale, and Mansions of Madness is usually one specific location, or maybe a couple if you have seen transitions or whatever. 
and Arkham Horror Third Edition is a city, right? So the city of Arkham or the city of Kingsport or whatever the case may be. Uh, so you kind of get the ideas of different scale for each of those three games based on, you know, which one you're playing, even though they're all narratively driven and they're all, you know, playing through specific scenarios and stuff like that. Eldritch Horror is probably the most random of them because aside from the mysteries, you're picking three of those out of the six for each ancient one. Um, and then everything is random. Whereas both mansions and Arkham third are more specifically scenario driven and there's less change and less randomness in them. So, well, for me, where the sense of dread in Arkham horror third edition comes in is drawing from the cup. Like, what are you going to pull out that time? Mythos cup. Yeah. Yeah. We have a joke. We have a giant, we have, we've been meaning to buy like a fun Cthulhu themed cup, but we had been using a transformer cup every single yeah, time. Big plastic transformers cup. So I, maybe we just need to get a scarier cup to add on to the sense of dread of what are you going to pull out of the cup. Right. Uh, and then finally for the Arkham Files games, we've got the Arkham Horror uh, Living Heart game. And this one is actually pretty similar to Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, except that it's got the Living Heart game model. So you're buying uh, Mythos packs, and each of those packs is a scenario unto itself. So it's way more expandable and way more expensive than the other games that we just talked about. Uh, Additionally, you build your investigator's deck before you start each campaign cycle. Um, yeah, they're called cycles, each mythos cycle. Uh, so you get the most customization of your individual character in Arkham Horror, uh, LCG and, uh, some of the writing in the Arkham Horror LCG is really good too, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel it has a little, because of, you know, how you read as you go along and everything, I feel it has a little bit more story that's, what I want to say, it's connected versus, yeah. Um, even with Eldritch Horror, you're pulling random cards. It's not like, you know, there's Mansions, yeah. Mansions has a story. Yeah, Eldritch follows. is the far end of this spectrum. That's yeah. emergent narrative. And then the card game is more guided narrative. Yeah. And I, I agree. It has some decent, decent narrative. Now that one, I don't usually get any sense of fear, but it definitely fits with that, you know, Lovecraft theme if you like it for this time of year. Right. So let's talk about zombie games because we have a bunch of those and I didn't realize how many we had till I started putting this list together. Sure. So one of these games I haven't played that you can talk about. I haven't played the zombies zombie game. Yeah, so it's zombies by uh, Twilight Creations. Zombies, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> and uh, that is a competitive zombie game where you are trying to survive the zombie apocalypse and everything has gone absolutely haywire wherever you are um it's either a town or a mall or the woods sometimes depending on the scenario you're playing and um the goal of the game is to be the first to escape by reaching the helipad or alternatively to be the first to kill 25 zombies and that's a lot harder than it sounds because that game is completely full of take that elements. Other players can play specific cards on you that will really mess you up. So, you know, the, the zombies are not particularly difficult to kill, but, you know, somebody will play a card and be like, well, you tripped, so now you got bit by a zombie and you lose a health or whatever. Um, I see why you've never brought this game to the table with me. I don't really think that sounds like <laughs> a nice game. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's got a bit of take that for it. But if that's what you're looking for, it's definitely one for the season. Um, no, I mean, I I'm, I just like I know a lot of people that really enjoy that type type of gaming. For Brad and I, I've said it in our previous podcast when we were you know talking about some take that elements of another game. I don't really like that when it's our t- downtime together. I mean, I might enjoy that with a larger crowd of people, but for the two of us, it's probably not the one I would go with. But, you know, it's interesting to me. If you would ask me a couple years ago if I thought that was theme appropriate for uh, a zombie game, I'd probably be like, no, everybody would be helping everyone. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen, yeah. So... <laughs> 
All right. So our next zombie game we touched on a little bit, Dead of Winter, jumping ahead on our list. Sure, sure. Yeah. So we did mention that um, Dead of Winter is a cooperative, semi-cooperative game, which means that sometimes, but not always, there is a hidden traitor. And what you're doing in Dead of Winter is you represent a colony of survivors that have banded together to try to survive the winter. And in each individual game, there's different scenarios. So you might be trying to find a cure for the apocalypse. You might just be trying to stockpile enough food to get through the winter. You know, there might be a non-zombie based um, outbreak in the colony and you need medicine or whatever the case may be. But sometimes um, there's somebody who is not working for the good of the colony and you don't know whether there is a traitor in the game and you kind of have to just hope that there isn't one until it becomes very evident that there is. And then you have to figure out who that person is so that you can exile them from the colony and hopefully still meet your win condition before you get completely derailed. I feel that that aspect of Dead of Winter gives it that real life worry, right? That not everybody is always working for the good of the group, right? And um, Dead of Winter for me is probably my favorite zombie game that I've played. Yeah. And to be honest, we actually usually don't play it on Halloween. We usually save it to play on the in winter. We usually right. do, but it is thematically appropriate for Halloween. Well, and I love how it handles winning because in order, if you are a, let's call them colony loyalists, right? If you're somebody who's on the colony side, you have to do the colony objective and you also have a personal objective. So... That's how the game sows mistrust, right? Because you could have medicine in your hand and the current colony crisis is that the colony needs medicine, but you're not going to put that towards the crisis because you need it for your personal objective too. And if somebody knows you have that medicine, they're going to ask why you didn't contribute, right? And that just sows the seeds of distrust and it makes it really easy for the trader to operate whereas in a lot of these hidden trader games it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly who the traders are because everybody's acting in the interest of the greater good except one person right whereas dead of winter kind of throws that on its head it's like well everybody's got their own goal and in order to win you have to do the colony goal and your goal unless you're the trader in which case you just have to do your goal (laughs) (laughs) all right zombicide a classic yeah, so we uh, actually have the first edition of Zombicide. I think they just came out with a second edition last year. Um, I don't know anything about it because we don't play even the first edition very often. Uh, but Zombicide is a cooperative, it's kind of like an action game, really. Yeah. It It's not really in the horror genre, but you're a group of survivors. There's always six of you, and you're just trying to mow down as many zombies as possible while doing some other objective, like finding you know, food or parts for a satellite phone or whatever. Um, and it, it definitely has a different vibe from the games that we've discussed where those are all about survival and tension and all this other stuff. Zombicide's like kill all the zombies, you know, you're the action hero. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, we don't dislike Zombicide, but for us it has that issue where if you get eliminated, you just sit there while the other person, yeah, or the other pe- group of people you're playing with play. So that's probably why it doesn't come to the table very often. Yeah, I think it's got a, a player count issue because at you can play it with up to six people. And at six people, as soon as somebody gets eliminated, they're just sitting there until the scenario is over. That's awful. At five or four people, you're not going to have an even number of characters for each person. And then, you know, at three, it's pretty good but you can still run into the elimination problem if somebody's, both of their characters get wiped out. And then at two, it's probably the best because you both get three characters. Well, and I will say, like, for me, the anticipation in Zombicide that creates a little bit of, like, that fear tension we talk about is as more zombies come onto the board, I do get a little worried, like, is my character going to survive this round because I don't want to die? So that it does, it does give that for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it starts out pretty slow, but as zombies find your location, it, the board just completely fills up with them and it 
has a nice arc to it where it starts off a little little tepid and then it's really quick at the end with how much stuff's going on (laughs) well and i think you know that is kind of how it would be if there was actually right like you would see a couple zombies but then as the if it was virus based at least that it would spread like more and more faster and faster you'd see more and more so it gives it that more realistic feel well i think i think the walking dead did that too where you saw a couple of zombies and somebody shot them and the gunshot just drew like thousands of zombies to that location because they heard the gunshot right oh yeah i forgot it has that mechanic yeah it's been a little while since we played but that's a great mechanic for it all right um there's one actually that we didn't put on our list that i just want to touch on quick because it does have zombies actually has a bunch of different is maximum apocalypse oh yeah sure by um rock manor uh, games and they are uh, they have a bunch like I said it's an adventure cooperative uh, adventure game and it has a campaign mode you can play through and I'm pretty sure the first campaign is zombies but we faced I think aliens at this point we've yeah faced... so, so it doesn't actually have a campaign mode yet no. that's coming in the the latest expansion we just oh. play it like that where we've been playing the scenarios in sequential order because they're numbered um, I feel like I've been lied to. <laughs> but what I really like about Maximum Apocalypse that makes it different than the other games. It's it's a roguelike. So thinking about like a, a roguelike video game. And what that means is like your odds of success are not guaranteed here. And in that way, it's probably got very similar DNA to Dead of Winter while being an adventure game like, you know, your Eldritch Horrors. Yeah, and I will say their anticipation and Maximum Apocalypse is when you move, all the tiles are face down, except for typically the one you start on. And when you move, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah. So unless you have a character that can flip in advance or some special card or whatever. So <laughs> there are times that you definitely get like lambasted. So I think <laughs> um, it has it definitely has that anticipation when you're playing it. Yeah. Uh, so here's another one that doesn't really have anything supernatural about it, but is still on par for the season, and that's Whitehall Mystery. Mm. So this is a hidden movement game where one person plays as Jack the Ripper, and the other people, up to three other people, play as the uh, Scot- Scotland Yard Police. Um, trying to catch Jack the Ripper before he commits enough murders and gets out of town. And uh, there is a lot of tension in this game if you are the Jack player trying to evade the uh, cops, basically. <laughs> well, and I even think as, as you know, because the, ple- so the, the Scotland Yard um, officers can be played, either one person can play all of them or you can split them, you can split them up. Um and obviously during this pandemic it's only been brad and i so when we play this we switch back and forth but even having three like last time we played i was scotland yard like i feel a high sense of anticipation because i'm trying to catch jack the ripper and so like the the there's a high amount of tension around the table i think on both sides for that game and it's that and to me that makes it i i think it's a very fun game as a hidden movement game yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's a genre we don't have a ton of experience with, um, but that's it's a good one. If you're interested in any kind of hidden movement games, I would recommend that one. All right, so let's take it to a lighter side. We've kind of <laughs> touched on gloom and doom and zombies and chasing serial killers just now to... Um, Room Service, which was a game I first played with uh, your brother and his wife when we were at your parents' for Thanksgiving one year. And I think I got it for my birthday a couple years ago yep. then. Um, but it's a very lighthearted game. But it's, you know, your witches flying around. Um, yep. And it's it's bright and it's got nice colors so if you're looking for a theme game that you can sit down with your family and not have everyone be traumatized or terrorized by but one it's it's a good one 
Yeah, and I'm going to uh, upset a lot of people, but I think it is one of Alexander Pfister's best games. Okay, I said it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you're, you play as like witches trying to deliver potions to around the kingdom or something, and it's really cute, uh, but very much in season for sure. And it's actually got a really interesting uh action selection mechanic where you can be cowardly or brave and if you're cowardly you get to do your action but it's not a very good action and if you're brave you get a much stronger action but only if nobody else was also brave for that exact same action and you have to follow if you can kind of like a trick-taking game so you really got to time your brave actions really well if you want to not have a bunch of wasted turns and it's actually pretty clever for a game that sounds a little silly yeah i mean but it's a lot of fun so i highly i highly i highly recommend it for your for your collection for this time of year um a little more on the younger side we got this when we went to gen con in 2018 is awakening lair yeah and um it's one that you know uh, Brad and I knew back then we wanted to start a family. We didn't we didn't know we were going to have a family or not, but we knew we wanted one. And so we started being open to beginning our collection of games that are, you know, more towards skewed younger. And Awakening Lair is essentially a dungeon crawler, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah and, so. and there is a sleeping monster at the top of a this... A monstrous terror. A monstrous terror at the top of this dungeon. And, you know, you pick your characters. There's a lot to love in Awakening Lair because all the characters are dual-sided. You can be the female or male version of whatever you pick. And, um, you know, the stats are the same. There's no... Better than some dungeon crawlers aimed at adults. (laughs) Facts. Um, We were pleasantly surprised when we first came across this. And I remember, I remember the guy stopped us and he's like, you want to try this? It's a dungeon crawler. We're like, we like dungeon crawlers. I think we played that game like seven times that night that we got it. Yeah, the hotel room. Yeah. But yeah, I I really like the, I want to say that the tactile nature of the game too, because when the the big bad shows up, the the boss monster, he's got like little cubes that you got to put in him to damage him and he the the boss physically moves down from room to room and you lose the game if he gets to the entrance because then he's escaped the dungeon right so it really gives that sense of oh man this big giant thing is coming towards us and we got to do something about it or else we're you know it's gonna escape into the kingdom and we're done yeah and along the way you're like trying to survive and fight off other monsters that come and like it's it's a nice one if you have, I would say, you know, you're, what do you say, 10? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably go as young as 8 if you have good reading comprehension. Um, you know, that probably sweet spot's probably the 8 to 13 range for that game. I would say it's it's pretty light, but it, it can be pretty fun. But even though, like Brad said, there's a big monster, it's not scary. No, like, it's very cartoony. It's very cartoony. Um, but it would fit the theme well for this year if you were looking to do a light-hearted dungeon crawler with your family. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's very inclusive, like you were saying. You know, you can be the the female barbarian and the, you know, the male witch. No one cares, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they, they did a really good job with that. Yeah. All right. So last one on our list. All right, so we've actually talked about this in a previous podcast episode because it was part of one of my memories, and this is targeting really young kids, and that's uh, Merry Magica by Pegasus Spiel. And this is a game in which you're uh, trying to help a young witch get dressed, but she can only wear her magical clothes. No regular clothes for us, please. Honestly, you can, you, I, I don't know. I haven't looked up the designer, I confess, but I feel they really have to have young kids because I feel like this is me trying to dress Jaina every single day. Oh, yeah, for sure. Do you want to put on your magical Elmo shirt today, Jaina? Like, come on. <laughs> don't run away. Come get dressed right now, First please. First three shirts weren't magic, but this one's magic, so you should want it, right? <laughs> um, 
And the core gameplay is actually pretty clever. So there are cardboard discs, which represent the clothing. And Mary Magica is a oversized wooden meeple with a magnet in her base. And some of the cardboard uh, pieces have to have a piece of metal in them or something because they're magnetic, but the others aren't. So the whole game is trying, you know, you flip over a card and it's like, okay, it's time to find Mary's dress. And then you try to figure out which one of the dresses is magic by putting her over it and seeing if they stick to her. It's such a simple mechanic. Um, I think it says it's for three plus, but our two and a half year old just loves loves this this game. game. (laughs) I, I mean... Brad said it in his memory the other week, but it was the cutest thing when she won the first game and just took off with her, the Mary Meeple and was running around the house. Like she was queen of the world. Like it's, it's just cute. And it's, like I said, it's really hard to find appropriate theme games for younger kids this time of year. And Mary Magica for that, you know, two to four, five range is just, it's a great game for that. And I think you would have a lot of fun playing it with your little ones. Definitely, definitely. So I think we've burned through our list, and we know there's a lot more out there, but we went off our collection and what we've played. Any any other games or thoughts before we, we wrap this one? No, I mean, it's a good time of year to stay inside with some candy and hot chocolate and play board games, but uh, probably won't be scared of them. <laughs> Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Game Night with the Saints with us, your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. If you like what you just heard, please consider leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps. You can also follow us on Instagram at Saint Gamers or Twitter at Saint underscore Gamers to let us know what you think and be notified when the next episode goes live. We also have a Ko-Fi account linked at the bottom of the show notes if you feel like tossing us a couple of bucks to help offset the costs of running the podcast and website. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, it's just a game. <laughs>